Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast on global regulatory affairs. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's senior editor in the Asia-Pacific office, and it's great to be with you again. Now, speak to any of the regulators around the world who are tasked with overseeing global tech giants, and the question of whether the tools they have at their disposal are adequate will usually come up. With technology moving so fast, they say, the traditional antitrust and merger regulatory approaches have been outpaced and are no longer fit for purpose. Of course, you'd be hard-pressed to find a regulator demanding fewer rather than more powers. That said, the global momentum is certainly building for new regulatory procedures and approaches to take on the digital platforms. Today, we'll examine two examples of that. In a few minutes' time, we'll cross to London to talk about how the UK competition regulator is advancing the need for new powers with which to manage acquisitions involving tech companies. First up, though, let's go to the heart of the EU, where the European Commission, which is the bloc's regulator, has been pondering whether the time has come to establish a code of conduct and stronger powers to deal with big tech. It's not an easy undertaking, of course. All EU lawmaking is the result of months, if not years, of horse trading among EU institutions and member states. Yet the proposal that we first talked about in a podcast a few months ago is now taking form. Our chaperone in this maze is, as always, Nicholas Hurst, our chief correspondent in Brussels, covering antitrust, among other things. And he joins me now. Okay, Nicholas, uh, the last time we spoke, the Commission was talking about developing this code of conduct and uh, acquiring new powers to investigate market structure. How is that project coming along? It's coming along a fair clip, James. (laughs) The first piece of legislation is uh, for so-called gatekeepers. Now, these are the dominant platforms that have a grip over the market that depends on them, that are, are kind of unavoidable trading partners online. Think Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon. The code of conduct would apply to them, or was meant to apply to them, and it would set out do's and don'ts, things that they must do and things that they must not do. Now, the Commission's consultations come back on that piece of uh, early consultation, that piece of uh, that proposal, and it was broadly positive. Everyone seemed pretty happy with the idea that we're going to slap the big tech platforms with more rules. The second initiative is to give more antitrust powers to competition officials so they can dive into markets and fix problems that might be impeding the proper uh, play of competition. Now, that has not received such a favourable response. And uh, policymakers are are back to the drawing board to see what they can come up with that would not be quite so broad and catch so quite so many companies where they can somehow target it just at digital companies. Mm. So, and let's spell out what the name of this initiative is. It is the Digital Markets Act, is that right? So the Commission's announced that it is going to split its proposals into two different entities. Uh, the Digital Services Act, which is, uh, which is outside the scope, let's say, of uh, what we've been discussing, it relates to, relates to content, liability, uh, hate speech, that kind of, that kind of stuff and the Digital Markets Act, which is all about competition online. Digital Market Act would have this gatekeeper proposal and this new competition tool that I mentioned. And so let's talk about the Code of Conduct. What kind of conduct do they actually want to ban here? 
you can imagine that policymakers inside the Commission working to a very, very tight deadline are really struggling to come up with this code of conduct because it requires them to lay down hard and fast rules for what the largest internet companies with all their diverse, varied business models can and can't do. Very, very difficult. So, for example, there was a leak that uh, we reported on um, earlier this month or last month, rather, and um, it, uh, it said that platforms would not be able to self-preference. Now, that's clearly based on its uh, antitrust case where the Commission said Google should not be giving preferential treatment to its own search services, specialised search services in Google Search. You can see why they would like to try and limit the ability of dominant platforms to do that. But consider the fact that that antitrust case took the Commission 10 years to bring to an end. It took them 10 years to work out whether this self-preferencing was really illegal, really a breach of competition law, really distorted competition. So you can imagine that it's not so simple to just have an article saying the dominant platform shall not self-preference. In addition, it happens all the time. All the platforms self-preference. Apple directs you to, when you switch on your iPhone, directs you to Apple Pay or to the App Store or to certain apps. And that's just one piece of conduct. Other things include uh, forced giving access to data. So forcing dominant platforms like Amazon, for example, should give sellers on its platform access to, to more data. Uh, a ban on pre-installing your own apps. Think Android or indeed the iPhone. Or, or making it possible so that you can uninstall apps, which is also difficult at the, difficult at the moment. Nicholas, they are essentially here trying to uh, uh, come up with new rules to avoid the need for lengthy antitrust investigations that we've seen unfold over the past sort of 10 years or so, right? That's exactly it. And you can imagine why, because after you've been investigating for four years, six years, which is probably about reasonable, or 10 years, as was the case in Google Shopping, everything is, is, uh, is, is way gone and it's far too late to put things back where they were and restore competition. So you can see why they want to do that. But these issues are inherently complex and these platforms have different business models. And sometimes these, this conduct is very nefarious and sometimes it's actually probably pretty positive. Think, for example, of Google Maps, which Google always plugs at the top of its search results and via Android. But Google Maps is pretty good. It works extremely well. And it's hard to argue that it's a shameless self-promotion. It's successful solely because of shameless self-promotion. Okay, so is this really just about tech companies or could these proposed new antitrust powers be broad enough to extend to other industries? Well, that was the Commission's initial proposal. They wanted to have the code of conduct and then next to it, this new competition tool that would be sort of broad investigation powers to fix competition problems in, in markets. But uh, the feedback to a early consultation on that was pretty rough. And I think including from national capitals in, in Europe and it seems that the Commission has gone back to the drawing board. In fact, it has gone back to the drawing board and it is trying to come up with a digital-only version of that. So you know, all those powerful real-world companies that were looking over their shoulder in fear at the idea that the Commission would come after them with this new tool 
can uh, can can sleep uh, more easily. But even if it were limited just to uh, to tech companies, quite clearly, what is the thinking on this in national capitals in Europe? What are member states uh, saying about it? And also, what are members of the European Parliament who have a big say in how this kind of policy unfolds? What are they saying about these ideas? I think everyone is pretty favourable. I mean, there's no love lost in Europe at the moment between politicians and the big tech platforms. Uh, probably the MEPs at the European Parliament are, are the biggest cheerleaders. They've uh, published a very uh, pro-regulation report in the last uh, last couple of weeks. The question of national capitals is perhaps trickier to summarise because there's also a patchwork of new initiatives in different member states. So in Germany, in France, in uh, the Netherlands, which are devising their own solutions to, to these issues. Now, there's going to be some overlapping. There's going to be some, com- some competition to try and impose perhaps the German solution or uh, a certain approach uh, favoured by the French. And that's going to play out over the next two years or so because the, the Commission is due to publish its uh, proposals by the end of the year. Uh, although that's an extremely tight deadline. And then it will go to the European Parliament and to the Council of, of European um, Member States and they will hash it out through negotiations and then there's going to be inevitably some sort of delay for implement, implementation. So in terms of the time frame, we're talking about at some stage uh, possibly next year for the implementation? I think it's more, we're looking more at two years. Two years. Okay, then I'm just calculating in my mind how many... How many more times I need to have you on the podcast to talk this through? <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully very many. But uh, Nicholas, it's been fantastic talking to you. I'll speak to you again soon. Bye. Bye, James. It's been an honour. Oh, yes. The always polite Nicholas Hurst speaking to us from Brussels, which is entering another lockdown ahead of what will be, no doubt, a rather gloomy winter. So good luck to him and to the MLEX team down on Rue de la Loire. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com and we'll post some links to the work of Nicholas and the Brussels antitrust team on these very important policy developments. Still to come today, why the UK's competition watchdog wants new tools to manage deals involving tech companies. listening to MLEX's weekly regulatory podcast. James Panicki with you. Thank you for making it this far. And you don't have to be a competition wonk to have heard of killer acquisitions in the tech world. The notion is very simple. A technology giant acquires a fledgling startup that has potential but doesn't pose an immediate competitive threat. The logic for the takeover is purely strategic, to eliminate a company that could one day become your competitor. The deal that, rightly or wrongly, is held up as emblematic of killer acquisitions is Facebook's 2012 acquisition of Instagram. At the time, Insta was small, with a handful of employees and presenting no threat to Facebook. And this is where regulation becomes topical. Under existing rules, do regulators have the power to deal with killer acquisitions? Can their assessment of the competitive risks posed by a deal be forward-looking Or does it simply reflect clear and present danger? The post-Brexit UK is in the midst of this kind of soul-searching. Top competition official Andrea Coscelli is of the opinion that he needs stronger and different powers to deal with the challenge posed by killer acquisitions. 
Victoria Ibitoye is an MLEX senior correspondent covering mergers for us from London, and she's with me now. Okay, Victoria, tell me something about Koscielny's plans for a new digital regime. What do we need to know? Yeah, so the CMA has been speaking quite a bit now about sort of its plans for big tech and how it thinks its um, competition regime and that of other regulators are not exactly fit for purpose. Um, And last month, Andrew Cicelli essentially lifted the lid on the authorities emerging thinking at a conference um, in the US. Um, And the big takeaway from that conference was that the CMA is considering a mergers regime, a parallel mergers regime um, for companies with something called strategic market status. Um, Now that hasn't actually been defined in great detail um but but the assumption is that big tech companies would fall under that um that remit so essentially what the cma wants for this additional regime is um for it to sort of set its own jurisdictional and substantive tests um so at the moment the uk has a voluntary mergers notification regime a company can uh, complete its deal without notifying the CMA and the CMA can call in a deal um, and look at it. And it has certain powers that enable it to um, impose something called a freeze order if it believes that further acts would infringe on its um, its own work. Um, but what the CMA wants for this regime is for all of the companies that fall under this parallel regime to be subject to a standard voluntary mergers uh, notification system, which means they'd have to essentially just notify all deals to the CMA and the working assumption is that that would also come with some form of a standstill obligation. Um, so it is a big change uh, for the current to the current system and it's probably Cicelli at the conference sort of hinted that it was in a bit of a way born out of the recent challenges to its freeze orders um, that it has been imposing more frequently on companies, merging companies that it feel need to separate in order for it to complete its assessments. Um, So that was the first half of that. Um, And the second half of this parallel regime um, is the CMA is planning to sort of change its substantive um, assessments. So the idea is that at the moment, the CMA assesses mergers in two parts at phase one. It has to uh, find that there is a realistic prospect of a substantial lessening of competition, which is, I guess, a, a more cautious standard of proof because the competition concerns only need to be realistic Um, and then at phase two it has to assess the concerns on a balance of probabilities which is a lot more of a uh, sort of you're sort of assessing everything in the round and it's emerging thinking is that for these mergers these companies are the subject of this parallel regime it should have a cautious standard of assessment at phase two as well Mm. Um, so that could be potentially quite significant. And so implicit in everything that Koscielny has outlined here is the suggestion that the tools he has at his disposal at the moment are inadequate, that uh, when it comes to killer acquisitions, uh, he doesn't have what he needs uh, to prevent them from uh, taking place. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Um, at the moment, the CMA has it has been really vocal, Koscielny and other regulators, but probably the CMA more than most, has been really vocal about saying that uh, the current system isn't working well and authorities have been asleep at the wheel and um, sort of this is just the recent, the most recent in a series of talks and uh, public proclamations from the regulator um, really pushing for some kind of 
real change mm. in this area. Now, an interesting recent, relatively recent example of the thinking of the CMA when it comes to killer acquisitions was the visa pled uh, clearance decision. The deal had sparked a lot of criticism from trade groups who feared it amounted to a killer acquisition. Uh, it, it, ultimately, the deal was able to uh, go ahead, but the full decision was published. What do we know? What does that published decision tell us about the CMA's thinking on this issue? So that visa plaid deal is really interesting because it is the second uh, deal that has attracted similar killer acquisition complaints um, in the payment sector. And it's the second deal that the CMA has cleared. And the first being PayPal Isettle back in 2019. Um, And I think it's sort of what it shows is that a killer acquisition concern and killer acquisitions are essentially framed where a big technology giant buys a small arrival um, for a price that seems disproportionately high uh, for the value, unless you're kind of removing the potential future competition that you could gain from it. Um, And what this kind of tells us is that the CMA doesn't necessarily see killer acquisition concerns as a silver bullet. Um, It won't automatically block a deal just because it's been flagged as being a potential killer acquisition. Um, It would consider all the elements in the round. Although it is worth noting that for Visa Plaid, it's actually not over for them because the deal is also being considered in the US for the Department of Justice and it may well reach a different view. Okay, so what were the key takeaways from the Visa Plaid uh, clearance decision? Yeah, so they were three big takeaways from the uh, from the decision that merging companies um, and anyone sort of interested in this evolving approach should note. Um, the first was that the deal wasn't notified to the CMA, so very similar to sort of what we spoke about earlier. It, it sounds like the kind of deal that may potentially fall under uh, this new regime. It wasn't notified to the CMA. Industry groups had highlighted it, um, but it was the CMA's mergers intelligence team that called it in and decided that it warranted investigation. So it highlights the risk um, and the sensitivity surrounding deals of this nature. The second thing was it shows that the CMA will really, really scrutinise the strategic um, rationale of a deal to get to the heart of killer acquisition concerns. So in Visa Plaid, Visa, a a payments giant, the CMA examined Visa's internal documents and its own strategy and sort of compared that against what it was telling it personally to see whether its reasons for acquiring um, Plaid, which it paid 5.3 billion for, considerably more than its uh, current market value, whether its sort of its reasons stood up. Um, And it found that they did. Um, It found that Visa was acquiring Plaid primarily because of its presence and its presence in the US and it's it wanted to sort of move into this uh, a new market and sort of expand its reach in that area. That was an interesting element of it because it sort of shows that, you know, if you have your internal documents and everything in line and it sort of justifies the rationale that you're telling to the regulator that that could work in your favour. And the second thing, the third thing about this deal is that the CMA almost in a way seemed to accept that for some businesses, acquisition by a larger company is actually part of their business model and it can be a sign of the market working well. Um, A lot of the fintech rivals uh, that sort of offer a similar business to Plaid that the CMA approached during the deal actually told them that they thought the acquisition was really, really good 
for their industry and it was sort of like a vote of confidence that an incumbent like Visa had seen that this is sort of the future and it felt that it was necessary to uh, acquire a company such as Plaid. So it was interested in that in that regard. Um, the CMA's, CMA's investigation was very much um, focused on the potential impact on UK markets and because of in the UK we've had a lot of initiatives to improve competition in the banking sector, primarily via open banking, it found that there was actually a lot of competition. Um, the market for payment initiation services is a lot more fragmented and sort of the, the competition risks there were not as profound as they would maybe perhaps potentially be somewhere else. So you're painting a picture of the CMA having to confront a very difficult sort of definitional problem as to what a killer acquisition is and how it plays out in the market and who will be disadvantaged if killer acquisitions are ruled out um, entirely. Obviously, there are many startups who dream of uh, of nothing more than being acquired by a powerful um, online uh, tech company. But what are the next steps here? Where do we go from here, given these definitional problems, given the sensitivities associated with this, what are the next steps? Yeah, so this is all part of um, the CMA's emerging thinking. And it does seem that everything that, so the CMA's approach to killer acquisitions and Visa Plaid, it's approach that we've seen for the past two years, which is sort of really looking at future competition when assessing certain digital deals and comparing that against a counterfactual where the scenario absent the merger is a lot more competitive if the acquired company um, grows in market power or becomes more becomes a bigger company. So it, it everything that the CMA is doing seems to be feeding into this uh, report that it's going to be delivering to the government um, by the end of the year. Um, so the CMA has a leading role in a government-appointed task force. It's called the Digital Markets Task Force. And they are really tasked with just shaping the future agenda and the future of tech regulation in the UK. So the idea is that by December, the CMA will present to the government not only its findings, what it believes needs to be done. And I guess we'll see from there um, what gets taken forward. Okay, Victoria, plenty of work ahead for you. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thanks. Take care. Victoria Ibitoye, and she's a senior correspondent for MLEX covering mergers for us out of London. And you can read her analysis of Koscheli's speech and the visa decision at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Head straight for the Insight Centre tab. Next week on the program, we'll be talking about the vote in the US. No, not that vote, but a California referendum that piggybacked on the presidential vote this week. Our team in San Francisco will walk us through Proposition 24 and the creation of the sole purpose data protection regulator. It's a significant development, although understandably somewhat overshadowed by other events. That's next week. And it would be a travesty if I neglected to remind you that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Leave a review, tell a friend and help us spread the news. We'll be back in your feed next Friday morning, GMT. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor at MLEX. Thanks for your company. I'll catch you next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.